Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I have been friends for a very long time. We met right after college. Yeah, and our first jobs as radio producers. We spent our 20s as wing women for each other, and it didn't work out very well. But then it did, and we found the right guys and stood up in each other's weddings. And then we had babies within weeks of each other. So we went from producers to reproducers. Which brings us to this podcast. We want to talk about topics that interest us and you and provide some knowledge to other average parents. We make it look easy. We make it look good. We're average, not experts. So we'll tackle these topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we'll get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. I'm pretty sure we already have. So, welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees it, they stop and The secret to raising happy and successful leaders, human beings for the future, boils down to one giant, powerful principle. Okay. Giant. Huge. All right. It's really simple, too. Oh, please tell me. Just show up. Just show up? Show up for your kids. Oh, okay. So simple, right? Yeah. We're done. Okay. Well, this is a short podcast, right? (laughs) This is going to be an easy one to edit. Yeah. Yeah. Well... You know, to be honest, it sounds really simple. Um, in fact, when I was reading about the the principle of showing up, I, I laughed out loud. And there's a book that we're going to talk to the author today. Um, I actually texted a screen grab of the book to my friends. And I was like, how can I freaking show up any more than I already do for my kids? <laughs> I mean, think about it. You and I were involved in PTA, uh, extracurricular activities, where their social coordinator, their their mover, their their mom Uber driver. <laughs> I, no, miffed. Oh, miffed. I'm miffed. Yes, that's right. You're a miffed. <laughs> with a bed tucker in her at night. Um, I think we show up a lot. Yeah. So, in fact, maybe for me, maybe to the point of like maybe interfering a little bit, like maybe I'm too involved. Um, and I think that in today's generations like we're just way more involved than our parents were yeah definitely but i but i dug a little deeper into it and then i realized okay maybe not what do you think about when you think of showing up all right so i have to admit i was skeptical when uh you broached this subject because uh, like you i spend a lot of time with my kids doing things for my kids um and despite consistently parenting both of them I get different results. And you probably have seen this. You know, I have one kid who uh, is so much like me. And uh, (laughs) she goes back and forth between being proud and terrified um, because she, she, I think she is proud of who I am, but she does not want to be me. Mm -hmm. So we have that kind of weird back and forth. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I have this other kid who is, she throws around sarcastic and funny remarks. She tries to be really tough. And then on the inside, she is a marshmallow. So I have to handle her with a very soft touch. And I show up for both of them. And it requires vastly different strategies. So I showing up seems like too simple. It's it sounds elementary. It sounds simple, but when you dig deeper, it's it's a lot. It's a lot more in depth than you think. I'm excited to learn about this. So I thought maybe we should talk about what showing up really means. Um, and in hindsight, I started thinking about after reading the book. Um, I get distracted pretty easily, and in this day and age with busy lives and schedules, um, I've taken a phone call during dinner. I've done email during dinner. I've 
they've stared at the top of my head while I was doing something when maybe they were trying to talk to me. So I'm guilty. Now, we don't have devices during dinner. Um, I don't, we don't either. But like if some, if somebody calls me, I will be honest. Sometimes I've gotten up to go take the phone call. Sure. And, and I got to tell you, we, we don't do devices during dinner, but it's palpable. Like everyone is kind of twitching, you know, like looking <laughs> over and see if, like, if there's anything buzzing or beeping or ringing or whatever, because we're all so attached. Right. Um, it's and, sad. And also, I got to say, even without the devices, that doesn't mean that we're having conversations at dinner. Often, you know, I think conversations need to be intentional. I think we have to ask questions that yield real answers. And instead, we're like, pass the salt. You yeah. sure eat a lot of Parmesan. Yeah. How's your day? Good. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Right. So I started reading this book, and we're going to talk to the author. But first, I wanted to say one thing, that something that I read in the book that immediately struck me as pretty profound, and I want to delve deeper into it, was, um, I'm going to quote in the book, history is not destiny. By making sense of your own story, you can be the kind of parent you want to be, regardless of how you were parented. And I found this to be really powerful and true because I believe in human nature, it's natural to be like, well, it's, I'm sorry, my dad wasn't around. I didn't, nobody taught me how to do it that way. So it's not my fault. Like, so it's easy to point the blame that, well, that's not how you were raised. And so you don't know any better, but darn it. Just because that was the way it was for you doesn't mean that you can't have control and make it better. Like, when you know better, you do better, right? Right. And let's be honest, we're Generation X. Uh, I was a latchkey kid. Um, we, you know, we rode the bus home. My parents own a business, so we were they were never home. We, we would go home, watch Brady Bunch secretly, or He-Man, and <laughs> and wait for like to hear the car coming up, and then we'd turn off the TV and pretend like and we pretend weren't like you it. weren't doing yes. the whole entire time. Yes. Oh, my kids do that now. Yeah. 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 So, um, but you know, we raised ourselves in in some regard because um, my parents were very very busy, and you know, your mom was home and she was like the the ideal mom, right? So, did you come home every day and be like? Let me tell you all my dreams and all my fears. I don't really remember, but I, I do. I will say that my childhood was pretty Norman Rockwell. It yeah. Was, it was pretty good. So you can't even say, well, I, I never had this. I, I personally cannot do that. That is correct. Okay. So then I'm going to be the curmudgeon who says, well, I pulled my bootstraps up. But you're not the only one that, I mean, I've had that in conversations with many people um, who have said, you know that's not how it, it wasn't like that for me and i i'm sorry i didn't know any better i you know so right. i did just fine as just, an excuse right yes. to not do better right so to talk about this idea of showing up because it isn't as simple as you would think mm -hmm. uh, we are joined by dr dan siegel he's a clinical professor of psychiatry at the david geffen school of medicine at ucla he's also a co-director of the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center. He's written a couple books, and his most recent one was uh, co-authored by Tina Payne Bryson and is titled, as we mentioned before, The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become and How Their Brains Get Wired. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Siegel. Thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here. So on the surface, um, you know, you heard me say already that how could I possibly show up more? And then I read your book and dove a little deeper into it. In in today's society with like going off to, you know, soccer, football, baseball, music lessons, piano, all this stuff moving around and then put on top of it, our podcast spends a lot of time talking about social media and kids and phones and stuff with all the digital distractions. How the heck can we balance the devices and all those things 
and still have the time of showing up and and, and connecting with our kids. Well, you know, you've said it exactly like uh, I think it should be set out in the beginning that there is a simple way of approaching parenting that may be simple, but it's not necessarily easy. Um, but that simple way, we we phrased Tina Payne Bryson, my co-author, and I phrased with the term "showing up." And what that means is there are, there are basically four S's that allow you to show up, and we can sort of dive into each of them a little bit so people listening can say, oh, I get it. It's really foundational, but also it's something I can learn if I didn't get it when I was younger so that I can see how to provide these foundational S's um, for my kids so that they will, even if they have different temperaments, because you're talking about having different kids in your uh, family grow up differently, temperament is very important. But the studies are really clear that the attachment that you have, that you establish with your kids, that is, they are attached to you, you're bonded to them, but they're attached to you, that attachment that you set up for them will be dependent on how you behave and how you make sense of your own life and how you show up, basically. And yes, temperament will influence how your kids are, because attachment is only one part but it's an important part of how they develop well-being and resilience. Well, you, I, I'm so glad you started with the four S's because that was my first question. Um, the, you say that children need to be safe, seen, soothed, and secure. Um, let's, let's break those down. So let's start with safety. Yeah, safety is the first one to start with. And probably anyone who remembers their own childhood remember that you were very dependent on your caregivers, and it might be your mother, your father, other caregivers, because as humans, we actually have more than one attachment figure. That's what the research is very clear about. In humanity, we're very unusual in that way, like your dog is a mammal, also has attachment, but it's only the mom who's going to take care of those pups. She isn't going around the neighborhood and say, anyone like to care for my puppy while I'm out, you know, scounging <laughs> around for food? No, you, you take care of your own puppy. You don't give them to any other dog. Well, we humans are different. We actually evolved to have more than one caregiver. So that should give a lot of parents a big sigh of relief that, in fact, we are hardwired in our brains based on our genetics to be able to have a selective few caregivers. One may be the primary one. But those caregivers, all of them, their main job is the first S, keep that child safe. Because, you know, we're little when we're babies, when we're running around as toddlers. We're not clear about this complicated world. And the first part of safety is to be protected from harm. But the second part of safety that's just as important, it's just quite different, is that we are not the source of terror for our children. And if we are, we make a repair because, listen, there's no such thing as perfect parenting. Even if you write books on this stuff, you can mess up a lot. And that's why Tina and I always put stories of how we goof up to our, the dismay of our kids. But we, we say it because, you know, parents should know you can have a direction. So if you do something, let's say, that scares your kid, you're yelling at them or worse, or you're yelling at your partner at home, or you're just really coming home drunk or whatever might happen, it isn't necessarily abuse or outright neglect, but even more subtle things can be very terrifying for your child. When you realize you've done this, make a reconnection with them. Have the courage to take a deep breath, 
take yourself into a place of clarity that, oh my gosh, what I just did actually was not helpful. I'm going to go back to my child, make a reconnection, and show them that I can be human, making a mistake, and then acknowledge my responsibility in that mistake, and then make a reconnection after this, what's called a rupture. So that's the second part of safety, is that we keep our kids safe, yes, and we're not the source of terror. And if we are, we make a repair and really try to figure out what was going on that we were terrifying our own child. And that's great, because then you're you're teaching them that they can make mistakes too, right? Exactly. And that's, you know, what a beautiful gift to give. It's, it's actually the building block of your child developing resilience. They say, okay, things can be tough, but I learned from my mom, from my dad, from another caregiver that, wow, when things didn't go right and it felt really bad, soon there was a repair and it felt better. Yeah. All right, the next S is seen. And um, this one I think is super uh, hard to get your head around. So you know, what can we do to make our children feel seen? Uh, in one of the interviews, you uh, you talked about SIFT, S-I-F-T. We need to SIFT the mind. So what, is, what does yeah. that mean? Well, you're pointing out I have an acronym addiction. <laughs> I love acronyms. Um, and that's, that's one of the many of them. Um, so sifting, you know, it's, it's the idea, and this is, a, uh, I think, a really, really important, all the S's are important. And this one, to get a clarity as a parent about what this means, really opens up the door to what you can do as a parent. So seeing means that each of us, each person, has an inner subjective life of sifting. It's the sensations in your body. It's images you might have in the form of visual images or auditory sounds you might hear, um, like being really angry and having seeing red, that kind of thing of an image. You have feelings, the F of sift, which is like your emotions, and you also have thoughts. So you may say, well, isn't that kind of obvious? You have these internal aspects of your mind. And I would say yes, And it wasn't until when I was in medical school that my professors didn't do any sifting of their patients' minds so they could tell them they're dying and then say goodbye. And I would say, don't you want to ask your patient about how they're feeling? And they would go, why? And I would go, what? And they'd go, why would I ask them how they feel? I said, well, because you just told them they're dying and their mind is really important. They would say, oh, that's not their body. That's not what we doctors do. Go get into a different profession. So I made up this word, mindsight, back in 1980 for how you see the mind of others for empathy and you see the mind, this objective inner life we have of yourself for insight. And later I went back to medical school and I noticed that the physicians who used mindsight had patients who did better. Later we actually have studies that prove that was true. Even get you get over a cold sooner if your doctor is empathic with you than if, than if he or she is not. And with child rearing, it's exactly the same thing. Parents who have mindsight, that is, who see the mind of the child. I'll give you an example um, to illustrate this. But if you have a parent who sees you, you actually do better in life. You have social and emotional intelligence. You have insight. You have empathy. And this way of letting the inner world be seen, that's what we mean by the word seen, really develops these networks in the child's own brain that if that's not there, they actually don't have the chance to develop them. Let me give you an example. Let's say a child falls down and she scrapes her knee. She was riding a trike. She was really excited. She hit a stone. The tricycle fell over. She falls down. She scrapes her knee. Some parents would just say, oh, get up. 
You're fine. Because Brush you're it fine. off. <laughs> yeah. Brush it off. It's all good. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, like that. So all of that is a strategy of parenting where you're taking care of the body of the child. So you're seeing the body, but that's not what we mean by seeing. We mean, did you realize your child was scared that she had been excited about the tricycle and maybe feels a little ashamed that she fell over in her excitement or maybe she feels pain or she's really, really anxious about, you know, ever doing something like that again. When a parent bends down and says, oh, sweetie, you must be, you must, maybe you were so scared when that happened, you are naming with these words like fear and scared or feeling upset or being having pain. All those words that we use are words that realize make your child realize you as a parent see their inner life. You used a really good example in the book also with um and it re- it really resonated with me was the daughter who um was looking for some shorts to wear to a birthday party and she's going mm-hmm. through her room trying to find these shorts cuz she has to have these shorts. Okay, this this has happened in my house. And I I go upstairs <laughs> and I'm like calm down. It's fine. Find something else to wear. And it's you're talking about mindset to like, it's not just about the shorts. Like, be like, I'm sorry. I know you have your heart set on these shorts. Like, I know this is what, like, how, what can we do to help? Instead of like trying to solve it for them or say, oh, get over it. It's just a pair of shorts. You have 500 pairs of shorts in your drawer. Those are the shorts that she has. And they, obviously, there's a reason why she wants that particular pair. That that stood out to me because that happens in my household. The clothing problems oh, no, are... Well, exactly. So, so think about what you're teaching your child. Some people say, oh, you're being so indulgent as a parent. It's actually the opposite. You're giving your child an opportunity to develop the skill of self-awareness. So you can say, oh, those shorts mean so much for you because last time you went to the birthday party with this friend, you wore those shorts and you feel so excited to wear the same shorts. And she goes, yes, yes, yes. You go, and you're so frustrated that you can't find them. And in fact, I think you left them at your aunt's house. So we actually don't even have them. And that's so upsetting. And then you sit with the upset and then you say, and so let's take a deep breath. You know, we can call your aunt and get the shorts back when she comes visiting next week. But right now we don't have them. So let's problem solve around this very understandable frustration you feel. Totally different than saying, get over it. Right. Right. So now now you're going to still go to the birthday party. You're going to wear other shorts. So it's not like you say, okay, well, let's just not go. I mean, you can offer that. And she says, no, I want to go. I want to go. Okay, well, how are we going to solve the problem? But here the exciting thing is, and this is where the scene S, I think, is so powerful. You are teaching the skill of sifting the mind so your child learns how she or he or they can really explore their inner life. Because kids who can do that develop what's called emotional intelligence. They understand Emotions are really important in life. In fact, in the brain, emotions and meaning are the same thing. Right. So it's so you're hard. Teaching your child how to talk about what's meaningful and, and to sit down at a table like you were talking about earlier and actually have conversations of meaningful things. You know? Right. So this is where you teach it with mindset. So um, the next S was soothed, and that seems obvious. Um, that it would be important to to soothe your kid, um, because if you don't do that, is that when you it leads to toxic stress? Like if if you if you don't soothe them and calm them down, that they're just going to be in a constant state of panic all the time. 
Exactly, exactly. So that's the first part that's so important is exactly how you're saying it. The second part is as you teach them that an interaction with you can lead them to go, go from feeling really upset and you know uncomfortable and distressed to feeling calm and clear, those repeated experiences of relational soothing literally in their brain teach them to develop the networks of self-soothing. So when they're out in high school and there's a disappointment where they try out for an audition, they couldn't do it, or they're off away in a job or college or wherever they're going to go after they leave home, you're giving them what we call an internal compass that allows them to determine the direction of their travels and also to calm themselves down. And they learned that because you were helping them with your soothing. Some parents say, you know something, I don't like this S because I think I'm coddling my child. They should learn how to just do it on their own. And in fact, if you really, the research is clear. If you really want your child to be self-sufficient, then when they're young and dependent on you, soothe them, see them, keep them safe. I mean, that's what the research is really clear about, that when you do these three S's, they're going to develop the fourth S, and I don't know if you want to get to it now, but they're going to develop the security which is where you have the capacity to basically keep yourself safe, to allow yourself to be knowing your own inner life and the life of others, seeing you're going to show up for yourself with soothing, too, because you can self-soothe. And you have this, this model of security is what it's called, which says, you know something, I believe in myself, so I'm going to try things that are hard. And if I don't succeed at first, I'll keep on trying. That's called grit. And I realize I can turn to others and have conversations that are meaningful, that are mutually rewarding. And I learned that from my parents who showed up for me. And that's how you get the four S's. When you have, you know, safety, when you're seen, when you're soothed in a reliable way, and no one's perfect as a parent. So just remember, repair, repair, repair. We never get it right all the time, even if you write books on this subject. So making a reconnection when it doesn't work teaches your child the skill of resilience, and then they develop the fourth S of security, and now they have this internal compass that guides them for the rest of their life. Your book is based on um, the latest brain and attachment research that I, uh, I was reading. Uh, I hadn't heard the name or the term attachment science before. Can, can you kind of flush that out a little bit and explain what it is and why it would be important to us? Absolutely. Well, you know, there are other parenting approaches that use the word attachment, but sadly, they actually don't draw on the science of attachment. They just use the word. Um, so I'm trained as an attachment researcher. So what that means is that there's a field, I'm a psychiatrist, but I'm trained in the research of psychology, which studies child development, and in particular, studies in very careful ways, the way a parent communicates with a baby and then a toddler and then you know, on and on throughout the lifespan. But what you look at is patterns of communication and how they shape the mind of the child. And in certain extreme forms, we can study, for example, abuse and neglect, you know, how the brain uh, is dependent on these secure attachments to optimize how it develops across the lifespan. So what we know now, and I just I've read a textbook for graduate school called The Developing Mind, and I'm just finishing with the third edition revisions. It was initially written 20 years ago. You know, when you review the science of attachment, which is so fascinating, 
two really, really big findings are worth just quickly summarizing. Number one, the science of attachment has been looking at, you know, kids before they're born when parents are pregnant and then has now followed them into their 40s. So the longitudinal studies can show that patterns of communication in the first year of life, which tend to continue in the same pattern, have a tendency to go on and influence how a person is in their mid-40s. So it's really amazing. And from all those studies, we can say the following thing. When you show up for your kid with safety, with being seen, with being soothed, and develop security, you can't guarantee anything, but you're the most likely to have resilience and well-being, to be compassionate, to be kind, to be a caring person in the world. That's very clear from the research across cultures. The second really, really important finding that blew my mind when I heard it is just what you were talking about earlier, that it actually is not what happened to you as a child. It's how you've made sense of what happened to you that's the best predictor of whether your child is going to have a secure attachment with you. And the great, great news of that research finding from the science of attachment, from attachment science, is that you yourself, as a parent, if you're listening to us, you can say, let me take a deep breath because what happened to me was not so good. But I don't want to think about it because why should I think about it? It was so painful, number one. It was so disappointing. You know, why, since I can't change the past, Should I make myself upset by thinking about it? And here's the answer to the question you're asking. Yes, you cannot change the past. And here's why it's good to think about the past. Because you not only had your experiences of the past, but you had the impact of those experiences on how you adapted to what was going on in your environment, in your family. Now, those adaptations often imprison us. And the making sense process liberates you so you're no longer a prisoner of the past. So the research in attachment is really clear. You give Parents a... who have difficult times, who haven't made sense, will then do those same things to their kids. And then if you do make sense, you can actually free yourself up and you're very likely to have a child with secure attachment to you. You give a really awesome analogy. I actually called a, I called Anna and I, I called a friend about it because I thought it was so cool about that um, realizing your past with the dog bite. Yeah. I love well, that analogy because, again, I said it in the beginning, a lot of times people like talk about, well, that's not how, like, it's not my fault I'm like this because I didn't, my, I didn't have a good role model or whatever. And they use that excuse. But your dog bite analogy, whereas if you're, if you get bit by a dog, I think it, it went, it goes, if right. you get bit by a dog, if you pull away from it, you're just going to get torn up and your skin's going to get all wrecked. But if you like, throat punch <laughs> if you punch it right if you go it right towards it his throat. Yeah. yeah the dog will gag and let go and you're likely to not have your skin ripped off you know like you it will be less impactful by exactly. doing that and in that visual of it i was like oh my god that's so true you know i'm i'm so glad you like that analogy because it's a little hard to hear especially if you're squeamish yeah um but <laughs> it, it, it was a you know, it, it came to me one day when I was thinking about, you know, what's the best way to convey to people who understandably, if you've been traumatized or just even had really, you know, a disappointing way where you weren't loved the way you could have been and, and certainly the way you want to love your children. You know, we pull away from that because it was so either painful or 
just so lonely and we had so many unfulfilled needs. So either way, it's, it's, it hurts to remember it. So, so that's when I was thinking about, well, the, the amazing thing as a therapist, because I'm a psychotherapist in addition to a scientist, you know, is that you, you can show literally in your own brain how when you have not resolved trauma or loss, those are the big, big ones, you know, what it does is it kind of freezes your brain up into, uh, we call it a non-integrated state, where you're prone to chaos or rigidity. And you can show that with the healing process, with the making sense process that heals unresolved trauma and unresolved loss, you actually start integrating the brain. So you move from those chaotic and rigid propensities into a state of harmony. And all the books I write, you know, in other settings, I mean, for parents, for sure, but in other, you know, these, this graduate school textbook I'm just finishing, it's kind of showing the science of what I just said, you know, in 600 pages. But it's like, there is so much science behind what we're saying. And this is why it's so fun to write a book with Tina, because at the same time we're writing The Power of Showing Up, I'm literally reviewing 2,300 scientific papers that are empirically done and in peer-reviewed journals, you know, that um, support everything we're saying. So we're kind of giving the take-home message. So what does the synthesis of all that science say? It's like the dog bite analogy. It's like, you know, if we pull away from something painful, the painful thing is just going to grip us mm-hmm. and rip us apart. So, you know, the good news of this, and I hope anyone listening will be inspired, you know, is that there are steps. It's, you know, the power of showing up can do it. I wrote a book with my daughter's preschool director years ago called Parenting from the Inside Out, which I, I never would have written any other parenting books if I hadn't written that book first, because it really takes the parent and says, let me give you a really supportive embrace and let's go through a walk of how memory works and motion works so we can really help you make sense of your past. And that's what the science says is how to not let that dog bite be something you pull away from. Put your, your flashlight right down how memory works, how emotion works, how narrative works, and let's free you from these unresolved losses and traumas. So, Doctor, I want to go back just for a second to the uh, the a- attachment. And um, when I when my babies were little, um, I was told to mimic them when they made noises. I was told to do eye contact, you know, um, very deliberately. What are some practical things parents can do to build attachment from day one? Yeah, you're saying some really, really powerful suggestions. So I want to support you very much in that. So the word we use for that is attunement. Um, and I like to, here's my acronym addiction coming up. <laughs> I, I like to remember um, the acronym PART, like what part do you play as a parent? So the acronym PART stands for presence. So the first thing is you show up and you're there literally with receptive awareness. Mm-hmm. So then, then we get to what you're saying, which is the A is attunement. And attunement is really the focus of your attention on the inner experience of your child or, or your partner. This could also be for a romantic relationship, too. Um, so you're present, you attune. So instead of just responding to behaviors that you see with your eyes, you're letting your heart respond, basically. You're using mind sight to sense the inner life of the person you're connecting to. So if it's a baby, you know, you're doing just what you're saying. You're aligning your um, nonverbal signals of eye contact, facial expression, tone of voice, 
your gestures, your posture, the timing, the intensity of response, those seven nonverbal signals, we talk about them in The Power of Showing Up, and you learn how to use these nonverbal signals to do the third part of the, the acronym part, which is resonate. So now your whole body is going to not become the other person. It's not exactly mirroring. It's more like um, letting yourself be really in a healthy way influenced by the state of your baby. So here's a good example. If a toddler falls down and, you know, he hurts his arm and is crying, you don't just suddenly start crying like crazy to mirror him. You know, he's going to look at you like, oh, my God, I thought I'm the kid. You're the adult. What's, yeah. what's going on here? Although that so did not... happen to me once. And I, you know, my toddler I know, fell. You and gotta I... Be, it's happened to me, too. you got to be careful. That. So I, that's why I don't use the word mirroring. Um, it's more resonating. So you see your child fall. You hurt his arm. So, yes, are you going to feel the pain? Of course you are. Are you going to resonate and have that pain inside of you? Sure. But you're not going to become your child. You're going to remain differentiated. So you get down to your child's eye level. You give him a big hug. You're very careful with his arm. You say, oh, sweetie, that must really hurt, you know, and whatever happened with the arm, sometimes it's broken. In my kids' cases, you know, sometimes it's just scraped, whatever it is. But you can differentiate that. So resonating, I love that term because... It's not becoming the other, it's being influenced by the other, but retaining your own differentiated core. And that's really important. And then the T of part is trust. When you're present to tune and resonate, you know, and there's a whole science behind that, I have a whole chapter about all this stuff in the textbook, you know, but when you do this, you are basically allowing your baby or a toddler or whoever, teenager even, when you're playing your part, what happens is they feel felt by you. Mm-hmm. And instead of being alone with this hurt arm, even though the arm still hurts, when you're joined with a caring other who's playing their part, presence, attunement, resonating, and trust, there's a wholeness and a, a soothing that happens because you're no longer alone in your suffering. And that alleviates the pain amazingly because and this is the amazing thing about pain, in the brain, pain from an injury, a physical injury, is mediated in exactly the same area where you would experience, for example, social rejection. Really? Yeah. It's the dorsal anterior cingulate, if you want to know the name of it. But whatever, it's exactly the same area. So when we join with another that's the opposite of social rejection, you're actually getting right into the part of the brain that is processing physical pain and helping everything calm down. Wow. That's so So this cool. is where joining and soothing, this is where exactly what you're saying, the, the part you play, presence, attunement, resonance, and trust, you know, allows you to show up, right? Now, if you have an issue with a broken arm in your past or you don't like people crying or whatever, and you haven't made sense of that in your life, of course, you could freak out when your kid falls, and that freaking out, your child's going to pick that up. They have a whole resonance circuit, is what I call it, where they're going to resonate with your freaking out. They're freaking out. You freak out more because they're freaking out. And suddenly, you know, woohoo, it's, you know, off to the races. So um, here's where you taking the time to take a deep breath. And on an airplane, you know, they always say, put on your oxygen mask first. You're taking care of yourself. Say, oh, yeah. I've got some issues here about whatever, 
breaking my arm or, you know, in my case, I, it's a long story, but I have a trauma about, uh, you know, a, a substance killing my puppy that I was supposed to take care of. And so I'm like nuts about when a pill falls on the floor and I think our dog is going to eat it. I like freak out. And my daughter says, what is going on with you? And I say, oh, my God, you know, this this little pill is going to. She goes, get a grip, you know, <laughs> or go to your therapist or something. You know, and, um, you know, so you so we have hot button issues for sure. Um, but just to know that then, OK, let me take some time, not in the heat of chasing my dog around to make sure she didn't eat this little vitamin, you know, but, um, you know, on my own time, as my daughter suggests, you know, to really say, whoa, why was I so triggered mm-hmm. by a vitamin falling on the floor? Oh, my God. When I was 14, my dog died. And oh, that was I got I got to talk to my therapist or write in a journal or talk to my wife about it. So that I'm I'm able to be really present for my child because if let's say she had been the one to drop the pill, not me, you know, I'd probably freak out and I'd yell yeah. at her. How could you drop a pill? The dog is here. You know, she'd go, "What? I just dropped a pill." Yeah, and I and I anyway, you can see how that goes. So showing up, um, you know, the the title of your book was showing up, and we I've already talked about like how busy our lives are. We have thirteen and ele- we both have eleven and thirteen year olds. Um, oh, brainstorm time for you! Yes, That's we're the in the book thick wrote, of no, it. But I wrote a book for adolescents called Brainstorm. Oh, really? Okay, we'll oh, have to yeah, check that one out. For that. So, is there is there anything to being like that we could sh- still be showing up for our kids, but like absolutely have no plan whatsoever, and just like have downtime with them? Is is showing up meaning like getting them everywhere? It doesn't mean necessarily like getting them to their activities and doing stuff, but like something about just kind of like hanging out on the couch together. That's showing up, right? Oh, that that is in a bigger way is that showing up rather than just being a chauffeur to a lot of the activities they don't really need to have in their lives that just give them pressure. You know, and in fact, in Brainstorm, as well as the power of showing up, you'll see a deep discussion of like redefining success. And what the research really supports is the idea of what you're saying about just hanging out, you know, being present, attuned, resonating and developing trust. This part we play happens by just hanging out, you know, and there's uh, in in brainstorm, there's a, you know, a whole there's a big shift when a kid becomes an adolescent. There really is a shift in the way we communicate and parent, for sure. And that whole book is about that. In fact, I wrote it for adolescents themselves to read, hmm. and parents can read them too. But So there is a shift, for sure. But still, the, the showing up process of safety, of being seen, of soothing, and of security still applies. And in fact, in the third part of that book, of Brainstorm, you know, there's an entire section devoted to helping uh, the adolescent think about what was my or is my you know attachment to my um, parent because if you don't develop security just so we just make sure this is said you know there are three different kinds of insecure attachment and they're very different from each other and understanding which of the three and some of us have overlapping forms of insecurity but to understand each of the three is really really important because the pathway towards healing, becoming whole, of developing security is quite different in one category versus another category. So these patterns of attachment, um, you know, we talk about in the, in the power of showing up, we talk about in brain, I talk about in brainstorm, you know, and when you know them, then you go, okay, I see, 
you know, with my aunt, I had an attachment that was more like ambivalent. And with my father, an attachment that was maybe avoidant. And my mother, I had it was disorganized. Whatever you can realize, I as a whole person may have had a few attachments that were quite different. And depending on how my child is, or even depending on the temperament that they have, they may evoke more of this or more of that from me. Um, and that can really play an important role in, uh, in our self-understanding and how we make sense of our lives. So uh, Tracy and I always talk about how the one thing we're consistent about is um, that we're not consistent. <laughs> yes. Um, so if we go in, you know, fits and spurts with showing up, does it does the science say that we that the outcomes will be different or should we just keep trying? And if we have, you know, when we need the repair, we do the repair. It's best to just keep going, right? Well, tell me what you mean um, by fits and spurts. Like, like I'm I'm present. I'm physically I'm physically present sometimes, but I'm not really I'm not really showing up. I'm not seeing them. Um, and and sometimes I'm like all up in their business, and they're like, "Back off, mom! <laughs> Back off, mom!" Like if if it's if we're inconsistent with showing up all the time, like it's still going to be an okay outcome, right? Because we're showing up mostly. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> the big message is absolutely that no one ever gets it right. There's no such thing as perfect parenting. And so um, you can take a deep breath and say, as long as I keep on making a reconnection after there are repairs, and that can be a pretty consistent reconnection process, then that's fine. What I also want to say is that if, as you go through the power of showing a book, you realize, you know something, I don't really give them like a consistent way where I'm seeing them. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. And sometimes I'm like shoving my own emotional baggage onto them. That's a particular kind of insecure attachment where the repair is not made, and that's called ambivalent attachment. And, you know, if that's what's been happening, it's it's better to know that's what you've been doing as a parent and then make a, a big correction, not just a repair in this very moment, but really do some deep self-reflection about what may be, I call it leftover garbage, what may be some leftover issues that you really need to attend to your past and what your childhood uh, had for you. Um, And the opposite is true, too. For some parents, they have what's called a tendency to dismiss, and then maybe they occasionally wake up to see their child, but mostly they don't. Um, And that's called an avoidant attachment that those kids develop. It's like one out of five kids have this with their primary caregiver. Yeah. And if that's your tendency as an adult, you know, it's a very different sort of journey for you to go back again and make sense of what happened in the past, but to develop certain capacities to pick up, for example, those nonverbal signals and stuff. And, And likewise, the third kind of uh, insecure attachment is disorganized. And this is where, you know, well-meaning, loving parents can be doing things that are terrifying to their kids. And the research shows that if that's happening, two things. Number one, it's most likely related to something that is totally treatable, but it's called unresolved trauma and unresolved loss. And um, it's like the dog bite thing. It's something so severe as you know, trauma or a loss but it wasn't resolved. And then rather than us just kind of whitewashing it and say, oh, yeah, it's all fine, I'd rather parents listening to us go, let me really question this. Maybe 
my continuing to terrify my child, even though I try to tell myself it's fine, it's actually not fine. I need to go write in a journal. I need to maybe talk with a friend. Maybe I need to go to therapy. Um, but I really need to stop what I'm doing because I'm terrifying my kid, even though occasionally I, I make a repair. If that keeps on happening, the research suggests, you know, it's, it can lead to a child having this disorganized attachment, which has a, um, an outcome called dissociation, where the child's mind fragments under stress. So it's a pretty important thing to recognize and to stop and the child to get treatment if they need it. But certainly for the adults that might be listening to us, you know, for them to say, okay, this is not just, oh, I'm an imperfect parent, everything's fine. It's actually, I fall into the unresolved grouping, and I need to do some work. Right. And and so I want to make sure that, and this is this is the challenge, of course, whenever you write this out, is if if there were nothing you could do, then us having this discussion would be ridiculous. Like, like it's like, nah, 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 nah you can't do it. <laughs> right. No, anybody can learn these patterns of attachment, anyone, even if you have unresolved trauma of the most egregious kind, the most terrifying, upsetting, you know, betrayals you can imagine. Believe me, as a therapist, I've worked with people. You've heard a lot. You you can't even believe it. Yes. Um, But with the process of making sense, they can go from unresolved states to resolved states. And the research is really clear when you took the time to acknowledge, hey, I think I have unresolved trauma or unresolved loss, I got to do the work, then healing happens. So this is where, of course, as, a, as doing a podcast or educators, we want to say, yeah, there's no such thing as perfect parenting. Absolutely. But if there's unresolved issues, you don't want to just say, oh, well, keep on, keep on at it. Right. No, you want to actually get some help. Pause and, and, and go back and, and attack the, go back to yeah, your past. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much, Dr. Siegel. Um, this, this book is amazing. I, I really, I thought I was showing up and then I, I read it and I'm like, oh, I, I can, I can always do better. And I definitely need to work in the scene department. That's for myself. I know that that is a struggle for me at home. So. Well, you know, you start doing it, and this is great with your kid's age. Um, you know, you're going to see the. it's a win-win-win situation because it, it enriches your relationship. It actually enriches your life, and it's absolutely going to enrich your child's development. So it's all, it's all good. Thank you so much, Dr. Siegel, the author, co-author of The Power of Showing Up, and uh, also Brainstorm and um, a couple others. Right, the whole, the whole, the whole brain child. The whole brain child, yes, brain, no drama, discipline, parenting from the inside out. Yes, brain, sight, mind, aware, bunch of books. Yes, a lot of books. Go on Amazon or check out his website, drdansegel dot com. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having me. So apparently, it is quite simple. You know, put down the phones. Emails can wait. Practice the four S's. Yes. Um, and it's not too late. Nobody's perfect. Your history is not your destiny. I love that. Yes. But also, you know, y- your history is something that you need to look at. Right. Right. You know, we, we need to look and see why we're doing what we're doing. And that often requires some inward. Yeah. It's some reflection. Yeah. 
Yes, exactly. Well, speaking of destiny, we believe it's your destiny <laughs> to tell your friends about our little podcast. Do you like this? I always try to find it. I know. This is, this is my favorite part. It's your part. destiny to, to go on iTunes and rate us um, on iTunes or leave a review. We'd love that. We'd love for you to show up on <laughs> iTunes. Yes. We'd be forever grateful. We want your feedback, suggestions uh, for making the podcast better, uh, topic suggestions. Uh, check out our Facebook page. Share our posts if you like them. Yes. You can give us a call at 331-704-0046 or you can email us at apparentlypodcast at gmail.com. This is a WGN Radio podcast. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Thanks for listening to Apparently. We make it look